Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, that is Jesus, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, Who? And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fell away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our text, we find ourselves beside the Sea of Galilee. The crowds have followed Jesus once again, and once again, uh, Jesus retreats to a boat that was docked at the sea while the people remained on the land. And he used the boat as a sort of a pulpit to teach from. And he began to teach in a different way than normal. He was teaching them in parables. Uh, This reminds me of how years ago there was much discussion about what method one should use in preaching. There are those who preach Topically, where they only preach on topics of the Bible backed by certain passages of Scripture, uh, catered to most, uh, the most relevant problems in society or in the local church. 
then there are those who preach what we call expositional sermons. You know, this is what we do here when we're going through an entire letter, verse by verse, within the context, seeking to understand the entire Word of God and to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. But then there are those who I'm sure are well-meaning and good Christians who have suggested that preachers ought to preach in parables. Why? Because Jesus did so. This sounds awfully close to the What Would Jesus Do movement that came about in the 60s and 70s. Uh, This idea that the church ought to imitate everything Jesus did to be more faithful can go in many odd and weird directions and we never get down to what the church is actually called to do. There are things that Jesus did that the church is not called to do, like walk on water. There are things that the church is called to do that Jesus never did, like physically baptize. So what is going on here is that there is a misunderstanding of what parables are for. I'm not called to teach in parables. I'm here to explain, to the best of my ability, what a parable is. Another reason, which I believe is the most important reason, besides not understanding what a parable is for, is the reason that Jesus knew the secrets of men's hearts. And via his divine nature, he knew the secrets of the kingdom, and he was revealing those secrets to his Disciples, when in regards to myself, I don't know what's in your heart. I rely on the word of God to expose what is in your heart to yourself so that you would repent. But Jesus knew what was in men and the parables were used to expose them. But, we, but, but before we get to that, we should ask, what is a parable? What is a parable? A parable is a story, sometimes with uh, fictional elements, which is meant to teach the listeners something about themselves, and in the case of Jesus, something about the storyteller. It is often a simple story, but it is at the same time trying to teach some deep spiritual truth. It is a bite-sized version of the Word of God. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, it is the Word of God in seed form which is planted in men's hearts. But what are parables for? I answer this in a, a general sense. In a general sense, a parable is meant to lead people to question themselves and where they stand with God, and whether or not we are part of His kingdom. It is meant to reveal what is in our hearts, just like the rest of the Word of God. We see an example of this when the prophet Nathan rebuked King David for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. The way he went about it was quite clever. 
Nathan told David a story of how a rich man who had many flocks and herds had taken one little ewe lamb from a poor man, which was all he had. And he was going to use this ewe lamb to prepare for his guest of honor. Uh, David responded with anger and said, This rich man deserves to die. And Nathan said, You are that man. You are that man. But when we come to Jesus, the way he goes about the parables is a bit different. He teaches it as the divine author of Scripture itself, as the divine author of the parable. So, how did he use parables? What did Jesus use parables for? Well, after Jesus tells this crowd the parable of the sower, how a sower went out and sowed seed on four different types of soil, which bore four different types of results, his followers asked him about the parables. And he explained something difficult for us to understand and something difficult for us to accept especially for our all-inclusive society today. He said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and he quotes what we read from earlier in Isaiah 6, verse 8, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He just said that to his disciples, and if you want to bring it up to speed to today, he said that to his church has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside of the church, everything is in parables, so that they would neither perceive nor understand, that they would be further blinded, blinded and deafened, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. This says that God doesn't want a certain group of people to be forgiven. That can't be. That can't be. Doesn't he desire all people to be saved? As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, we must remember that all doesn't mean all, all the time. All could easily mean all types of people. And we can get into a conversation about uh, God's sovereignty over sinners. As he once said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But we must remember who he is speaking about and who he is speaking to. And remember Israel of old. Remember Isaiah chapter 6. Who was the audience that God was speaking about? That God was speaking to? 
They had totally rejected God at this point. They have totally hardened themselves against God. They have turned their back on him. I mean, we ought to question ourselves, and who, who are we to question his sovereignty in hardening and causing confusion among anyone? But at the same time, we must remember that they have hardened themselves. That Israel at this point have hardened themselves against God. Just like Pharaoh, when asked to release the people of Israel, was hardened by God, it says in Exodus chapter 9. But at the same time, in the previous chapter, it says that Pharaoh hardened himself against God. So we ask ourselves, well, who hardened Pharaoh? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? Both. And when did this happen? At the same time. This should just lead us to question whether or not we'll ever understand why Jesus teaches us. And why the Lord hardens some and softens others. This should lead us to to never have an answer as to why. We don't know. God's sovereignty and human responsibility in responding to the gospel, they never intersect in our minds. We will never understand how that works. But what we must remember, what we must remember is that God saves some. Praise Him for that. Praise Him that He would save anyone. Think of us even as Christians. We offend Him every day. We offend Him every day. But He shows grace and mercy. And always remember this, that man will be held accountable for hardening himself against the word of God. If anyone rejects the gospel, God is not going to stand trial. The one who rejects the gospel will stand trial. At this point, the Pharisees and the scribes were rejecting the word of God in Jesus Christ, and they were plotting to kill him. Remember also, they committed the unforgivable sin previously in blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is doing here is fulfilling what he said would happen. He's hardening them even more so that they would not turn and be forgiven. And so the judge has summoned them through this parable. He calls them to account and hardens them even more. And unfortunately, this happens so often, even when people read the Bible. This happens even with preaching, as I mentioned earlier. That preaching often, unfortunately, hardens people against God. Makes them angry against God. As much as it softens others. Do you know people? Do you know people who have read the Bible and come up with all sorts of ideas and things that the Bible doesn't say. 
We see this happening today when people say that God is love, so we need to love everybody, which no one is arguing against. But for them, it means that we accept everyone as they are, and we are not to talk about sin or call people to repent. I'm sure we can think of some really egregious sins that God has Himself called an abomination which have now been accepted by most so-called evangelical Christians. So we are called to ignore everything that God has said about sin for the sake of other people's emotions and then call it love. That's not the love of the Bible. That is the fear of man or the fear of being rejected by man. That is the fear of not being loved. By man. Many are picking and choosing what they want from the Bible, distorting it to their own destruction, and never truly understanding what the Bible calls us to do in light of who God is. And the Word never takes fruit because they've been given half truths. And never takes root in their souls. And they never truly repent. That is the same type of people that Jesus is speaking about here. The parables are for them to further blind them as they reject God and His Word. Now you've probably struggled with this, haven't you? You've probably come to this passage... You've probably been in a panic close to hyperventilating at some point or another when you read a parable uh, as this one and read this explanation and ask yourselves, am I lost? Am I lost? I don't understand this parable. Now notice, it's not just that the Pharisees and the scribes and other Unbelievers today do not perceive and understand because there are many things in the scripture that we don't understand. Even Peter said there are things in Paul that Paul wrote that he he doesn't understand, that are hard to understand. Having difficulty understanding the Bible does not mean you're lost. That's not all there is that's going on here. The problem is that the Pharisees and the scribes and those around Jesus were refusing to turn to God and repent. They were refusing to receive the word of God. They never turned to him. They are hardened against him. They may even say they believe in God, but they are against what he says about sin in his word. They have made up their minds. Many today believe that they are not really sinners. And they don't accept what the word of God has said about sin. In the direction that we are all heading in. So that they may live in peace. And so that they may live as they please. So as Romans chapter 1 says, so God gave them up to their sin. Because at this point, the disciples who have been called and saved by Jesus did not understand the parables. And yes, I believe that they were already saved by this point. There are different opinions 
on that, but I believe they are already saved. Not at Pentecost, they are saved right now in this passage. And they did not understand. That is why he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? But notice the difference between them and those outside. They were sitting at the feet of Jesus. They were sitting in a posture of humility and of learning. That should be our posture in light of the parable. That should be the Christian posture. The disciples as true disciples wanted to learn from Jesus and what the parables meant. That is different from those who were hardening themselves against him. Who were seeking to kill him. And so Jesus explains this parable to them. He explains it to them. A parable is an allegory with symbols. It is a teaching that has many symbols. And so he goes to explain these symbols. He begins with the bad soils. The first three, the the bad soils. So he begins by calling a very large crowd's attention in order that they may listen carefully. And so we ought to listen carefully. He says, listen, behold. Then he introduces the sower, who we are safe to assume, the sower is God. Or he is speaking about himself. And this sower went out to sow, and he scattered seeds, which he tells his disciples is the word of God. The sower scatters the seeds on four different types of soil. The soil represents the condition of men's hearts and how they receive the word. So the sower scatters some seeds along the path, some on rocky ground, some among thorns. That's the first three. And then the last one is the good soil, which we will get to later. Now, for you farmers out there, this may sound a bit disturbing. Because you know you wouldn't waste your time on sowing seeds on anything but good soil. You would probably make sure that, you, that before you sow seeds, you would need to till or plow the soil and remove the rocks or anything else that would prevent the crop from growing. But in Israel at that time, they did not plow before sowing seeds. Part of the reason is that they did not have the land, as we see today. Uh, All this land, I'm always amazed at how much land we have for growing crops. They did not have that at that time. And they didn't have the tools that we have today. Imagine doing it the way they did. How did they do it? They would plow after the seeds are scattered with a pointed stick. So they would go around and just move the stick around in the soil until the seeds would sink in and take root. Now imagine doing that out here. You have some long days. But this is a picture of the way God spreads His Word. He spreads His Word so that it lands on every type of soil. He spreads His Word so that everyone and every type of soil would hear it. 
so that everyone would hear it. I think that's part of the reason why we have these speakers out here. Even if you don't attend church, you could just drive by and hear it. Um, not sure if that's the reason, but it's probably a good reason. But notice today that the Word of God is everywhere, even on the lips of unbelievers. It has been misrepresented. It has been misused, misapplied. But praise the Lord, it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And the promise, the good news is that it won't return empty. And this is the downfall of many cults today. I I, I used to be part of a cult. I know how they operate. And one of the downfalls of cults is that they use, often use, the Word of God. They use the Word of God. And when somebody actually picks it up and reads it by the work of the Holy Spirit, they leave the cult. God spreads His seed on all types of soil. And every one of us fall under one of these types of soil. So as Jesus explains the parable to His disciples, He begins with the first type of soil. This is where the seeds fell along the path. This is where the word is sown. When they hear the birds devour the seeds, or as He interprets it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Because that is what Satan does. As Paul says, in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now this is the unbeliever who may hear the word of God, whether here or from someone else out there, and it is like it fell on deaf ears. That is our interpretation of it. It is like it fell on deaf ears. There was no impact and it meant nothing to them. They were distracted by Satan and their minds were filled with other things that are more important than their own eternity. They tune out and fully dismiss their judge. These are those who who share the word of God and they quickly change the subject. And they list all these reasons. We've all heard it before. I've I've been in some of these conversations. They list all these reasons why they can't believe in God. They'll throw some science in there, some psychology, whatever it is, to find reasons why they can't believe in God. And we often blame them, right? But we know it is Satan that comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. I pray that is not the case here in our own gathering, but it can happen even in the church. It can happen even in the church. Secondly, there is the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately the plant sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. This is speaking of those who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. Meaning, it was superficial. This is not the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a superficial response. But notice there was no grief. There was no grief of sin. No conviction of sin. Something missing in the person's heart. 
They receive the goodness of God's grace and forgiveness, but they don't see their own need. And they have no root in themselves. But it says they endure for a while. Then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately they fall away. This is hard to apply in our context today because we do not witness much persecution. We do not witness much persecution yet. But there is still what we call peer pressure. As Christianity grows to be an enemy of most people around us, there will be rising pressure against us. And this is where the test begins. This is where the test begins. Years ago, during the winter, when I used to participate in youth ministry, we used to bring a a group of high school kids up to a Bible camp for a weekend. It was a fun place to be. Uh, There were games and activities, so the kids' emotions were always on high. Uh, The sermons were great. They were good sermons, solid sermons. But there was a pattern to them. Uh, They often started off very light, very happy, go lucky kind of. And then the night before we leave, there is an emotional sermon, kind of like a fire and brimstone uh, type of sermon meant to lead to a response. It it, it sounds pretty manipulative, right? In my opinion, that should be every sermon. (laughs) But uh, that's my own opinion. And when the gospel is presented, the kids are called to raise their hands in the form of an altar call. Who wants to accept Jesus? All of these kids raise their hands. They're excited. Some of them are filled with joy. Some are pretty sad because the message was rough. And some were forced, as it was. Forced to raise their hands by their peers. And some of them were my kids. And they would tap the, their friend next to them, who their first time going, and whisper, Hey, this is the part where you raise your hand. And when we leave the camp, everyone is filled with joy, excitement. And it was a wonderful time. And I admit that. I loved going there. Loved ministering to those kids. But then I began to notice, as the years went on, the following year, it was the same kids who raised their hands the year before, raised their hands again, and again, and again. And it became sort of a routine. It was just a thing that they did. It's just what they did. But they had no root. They had no root. And no one planted that root. Because I asked myself, what about the year before? I thought you were a Christian already. So what happened? What happened? They received the word with joy that one day. And then since there was no root, the word of God didn't take root in their souls. There was a superficial and emotional response with no real grief or hatred of sin. No real love for Jesus Christ. And once they went back into the real world, being surrounded by all the pressure to conform to the world and what the world is telling them, they fell away for that year. And believe me, the pressure is on today. 
The pressure is on to conform today. It seems like persecution is right around the corner. And there's the pressure to conform to the world's agendas. Think of all the movements that are out there. That are trying to get the church to conform. It was all joy. When we learn about forgiveness and the love of God. And God is painted as a God who is all affirming and all inclusive. But when we learn that we are called to live a certain way in the world. And to profess Jesus among men. Among men who hate Jesus. Among men who hate the real Jesus. Not this false Jesus. That is where the pressure begins. When we are called to repent. Among those who refuse to repent. That is where the pressure is. How many have we witnessed lately. Who have fallen away from the faith. Usually they have endured for years. For a long time they were professing Christians. And you notice the pattern. It's usually when sin is confronted. When we are called to call sin what it is. And we are called to call sin what it is. So that we would be rejected by men. We will be rejected by men. If we call sin what it is. And there are big names in pop Christianity. That is why being famous and being Christian. Is even all the more difficult. Because if you're a celebrity. You thrive on being popular. You're loved by the masses. If you're not loved by the masses. I'm sorry you're not going to be a celebrity. That's why the true Jesus was never a celebrity. You won't be that popular. Because the world hates Jesus. And you won't be that popular if you love Jesus and follow Jesus. But it's not just famous Christians. But we too will feel the pressure and the persecution. As it is coming from every level of society today. Coming from our families. Our schools. Our universities. Including from our own government. And even within our own churches. From everywhere. We're being pressured to conform. There are those everywhere who want us to walk away from what the word of God says when it calls us to repent. As Paul says, and indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Not in just in general moral life. Not not a general moral life. Not a godly life in Islam. There's no such thing or any other religion that is. The only way you can live a godly life is in Christ Jesus. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is evidence that we preach what we preach and believe is true. Persecution is a witness to the truth. It is. It's the show. That what we proclaim is true. I'm not saying not every other religion doesn't get persecuted. I'm saying, but you see the pattern that mostly Christians are being persecuted. Two million Christians die every year due to persecution. They're killed, murdered. You wouldn't think it would be that high. Two million is the average. That is where our faith will be tested. Where will we stand? 
Where will we stand? Or will we fall away from the faith? These trials will be sent to test the true nature of our response because the Christian life is not always a bed of roses. It is hard. It is a fight the moment that you begin to turn to Christ. There will be flaming darts thrown at you. But what will extinguish those darts? What is it? It is the faith that Christ has given you. It is by His power that you will be able to withstand. Thirdly, there are the seeds that fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked the plant, and it yielded no grain. These are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So there are those who fall away from God due to persecution. Then there are those who fall away from God due to their own sin. These are those who refuse to kill the thorns and the weeds, which means they refuse to repent. These are those who have their priorities confused or upside down. They will come to church to hear the word. They take things from it that they like, but they won't allow the word to root out the sin from their hearts. They won't put their hands to the plow and root out the thorns. There are those who profess they believe in Jesus like most Americans. But they don't possess faith because there is no fruit of a Christian life. There is no evidence that they are truly Christians. There is no repentance. They refuse to repent. They put their trust in a one-time altar call or prayer card that says, I accepted Jesus, but there has been no progress in their walk with Jesus. They may even rely on a spectacular conversion story. Yet their desires have not changed. Now this is not speaking of Christians who struggle with sinful desires. We all struggle with sinful desires. Not one of us is immune. This is speaking of one who doesn't bother to struggle. And allows the world to dictate his choices. His sinful desires guide him rather than the word of God. He seeks only to live in comfort. Being comforted by the word, world and its lusts. These are those who abandon. You hear stories uh, of people who have abandoned their wives or their husbands and their children. And say, I just need a change. I just need a change. I want something new. I want to experience life. I want to experience this world. Because that's all they have. Is this world. And he cannot let go of the pleasures that the world has to offer. He does not seek the kingdom of God first as Jesus calls us to. And there are some churches today saying that our desires are not sinful. It is only when we act on it. But here, Jesus says, our desires will choke out the word in us. If we claim to be Christians, the word ought to take root and the Holy Spirit uses it to change our desires and conform us to the image of Christ. So what Jesus is saying 
is that the word of God in the Christian life will bear fruit, the fruits of repentance. The word of God is key. The fruit is that things have actually changed in our hearts. Now, fourthly and finally, we get to the good soil. We shouldn't think of the soils as bad soils are bad people and good soils are good people. That's not the case. If we think that we bear fruit because we started off as good people, we probably never truly received the word of God. Because the word of God reveals that all of the soils are made up of bad people. And we are all called to repent. The word reveals to us our sin and that we must turn to God. But the good news is that God is sovereign over these soils. Every one of them. The good soil are the hearts that have been broken due to their sin by God, the Holy Spirit. And have been renewed and made ready to receive the word. So that it will take root and bear fruit. So in other words, the good soil are those who are bad And God has renewed them. God has saved them. God is sovereign over them and gives them a new heart, a new soil. He says that these are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. These are those who accept it in its entirety. Not just what I like one day and then the next day I don't like that part of the Bible. That's a little offensive. No. These are those who accept it entirely. All 66 books of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. And it takes root and it bears fruit. How much? How much fruit? In those days, tenfold was considered a lot. It was considered a harvest, right? A plentiful harvest. Here Jesus says that the good soil will bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This means that the soil was plowed and tilled properly so that the word could take root. The question is, how? You're probably discouraged and saying, I don't see much fruit. I don't see much fruit of a godly life. But I must remind you that God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign here. The good news is that God's word will not return empty. Remember the stump in Isaiah 6 is the holy seed. Everything around us and everything in us will burn. And what will last is that holy seed. That fruit that that we will bear in eternity. If you accept it. If you accept it. The word in its entirety, even just a little fruit, is a good sign. Then no fruit. Even a little fruit. And what do farmers need to do? We need to wait. Farmers need to wait for the fruit. Sometimes we need to wait and rely upon God, who is the one who gives new life, new eyes. New ears to hear. 
in order to receive the word. That's why he says, he who has ears, let him hear. We ought to trust the good sower who will prepare the soil. Remember, soil can't prepare itself. You all know that. I forgot to prepare the soil in the backyard this year. Now I got weeds. It's an example. It's an example. The soil can't prepare itself. Our hearts become good soil by the grace of God. Sometimes we need to wait and pray. And if you don't see the fruit of Christ-like desires, if you do not see true repentance beginning with those desires, then go to the good sower. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. Because I guarantee you, He will plow your heart and He will enable you to allow the Word to take root and begin the process of rooting out that sin in your life. It's the beginning. It's, it's going to be imperfect in this life. Always. Until we die. Because He is gracious. He puts this here so that we won't despair. We're not to despair. But he says this, that we may see our great need of good soil and how he is the only one who can grant it. That is the point. The point is about Jesus Christ and how he is the good sower who is to plow your heart and make your heart ready to receive the word. So Jesus laid out four ways to respond to the word of God. What is your response? Which of these four do you fall under? Are you ignoring the word? Do you receive the word? Or do you refuse to stand apart from the world and repent? Or do you receive it and allow it to take root and to transform you? I pray that it is the latter. I pray it's the latter. Amen. Let us pray.